The Feminist Coach Academy podcast is proudly supported by Perk Digital, helping professional and entrepreneurial women amplify their message, build their body of work, and leave a legacy through podcasts. For more information about how podcasts can help you build your brand, visit perkdigital.com.au. Welcome to the Feminist Coach Academy podcast, where inclusive feminism, business, and coaching meet. This podcast is proudly brought to you by the co-founders of the Feminist Coach Academy, Naomi Arnold and Cameron Aaron. We are feminist life and biz coaches, both passionate about helping coaches, therapists, helping professionals, practitioners, and entrepreneurs integrate a feminist lens and perspective into their businesses, life, and client practice. On this podcast, we plan to help you do so. Now let's get started. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here and listening. We have an exciting podcast episode for you today. But before I get to it, I just wanted to um, express my excitement for the group that we have who have enrolled in our September intake. This community of feminists is so good. We have been really, Nay and I have really been enjoying meeting everyone on the meet and greet calls and in the Facebook group, our private Facebook group, and just getting to know y'all on social media. And so we're very, very excited. And we had a successful launch. And to have a successful launch in a year of a pandemic with a lot of other things going on is pretty damn good. I have to say, like, we are celebrating big time. And it's, yeah, it's definitely like blows my mind. It blows both of our minds. I can speak for both of us because May and I have both been talking about this a lot. So just wanted to celebrate that and also ask you, although I can't hear your answer right now, but feel free to share on Instagram or Facebook. I want to ask you, what can you celebrate right now in your life? It could be anything that's going well, anything that's bringing you pleasure and joy, anything good for you. What can you celebrate? It's, you know, this year is really a very interesting one, right? It's it's tough for all of us. And those every moment of joy and pleasure and celebration is worth something, right? It's definitely like soak that up. Soak up all the pleasure and joy and self-care that you can and create more pleasure and joy during this year because it is an extra challenging year. Please give yourself permission. You don't need my permission, but give yourself permission to experience as much pleasure and joy as you can, not feel guilty, not feel shame, and take care of yourself. Okay, so I want to get into today's episode. So this is a special one. I actually did this interview years ago, a few years ago. This interview is with 
Dr. Anne Fosto Sterling, who is a professor of biology and gender studies at Brown University. So I first came across um, Anne Fosto Sterling when I was studying gender studies as an undergrad. I came across their book, Sexing the Body. And it actually wasn't a book that I read in academia, but I just happened to come across their book at the same time that I was majoring in gender studies in academia. There were other, there were books that I just was discovering out in the world that were not required readings in school that had to do with gender studies. And that was one of them. And I highly recommend this book. It is on our recommended reading list, our feminist recommended reading list in the Feminist Coach Academy. And I highly recommend this book. It really goes over how we gender the body. And so when I first read this book in undergrad many years ago, over a decade ago, I really took to it. I learned a lot and it was really resonating with me big time of of the thoughts that I was having at the time about gender and still do. And just a few years ago, I decided to ask the author if I could interview them for my old podcast, which no longer exists. And they said yes. (laughs) So um, I'm a fan of them. And so, you know, the author of one of, I think, the most essential books about gender and the construction of the body and how we construct the body. You know, it's it's amazing that they uh, that I got to talk with them. So this is a deeper conversation around how we gender the body. And so I highly recommend it. So if you're interested in that, then you're going to love it. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get to this interview. Hope you enjoy. So there's so much to talk about, but I will try to keep it as brief as I can to 30 minutes. Okay. So as you know, because I emailed you, your book Sexing the Body was hugely inspirational to me and educational to me in my early 20s. I'm 31 now. And it really sparked my interest in researching and writing about the gender discrimination in sports around those who don't fit the binary and examining sex as a construct. And so you've been a huge influence on my life. So I just wanted to hear that. <laughs> yes. So just first off, what inspired you to write Sexing the Body? Like what inspired you to get into this kind of work and research? Well, of course, Sexing the Body wasn't my first book. Um, right. And the earlier book, Mrs. Gender, was sort of of a different nature. Yes, uh, I have that one too. <laughs> um, but I think the thing is that Sexing the Body which obviously took me quite a while to write, was a response to pushback against feminists who started talking about the social construction of gender. So people took the notion of social construction literally, and so and in pushing back against the idea of social construction, they would sort of do what we in academia call a reductio ad absurdum, so they would, you know, say, you, yeah, essentially saying you can't construct, it's not the social world that constructs bodies, it's biology. 
you can't just, if we were socially constructed, then we could just decide one day to be one thing and another day to be another thing. And, you know, just push the whole lot. It was sort of a refusal to, to understand what was meant by social construction. But I started thinking about what, you know, how do you include the body very specifically in social construction and what would it mean from within science and in talking about biological material to use the phrase social construction. And I actually sort of got turned onto it by my earlier work on intersex, uh, which in turn, I sort of had a an aha moment with that because I taught embryology or developmental biology and one of the things that I used that I used to teach was the development of the uh, reproductive system and the urogenital system and I uh, was always lecturing on you know the similarities between in early development between male development and female development and so forth and then I would lecture and this is like in the 70s on John Money's work and Anka Earhart's work on intersex and on the surgery done to return intersex babies to the imagined category, which was a complete binary that they belong to. And <laughs> I thought that work, actually, it was pretty radical work yes. as stood in the 50s and 60s. But by the mid-70s, with discussion of social construction and everything going on and into the 80s, I suddenly thought, wait. <laughs> This is a literal example of the medical world constructing a body to fit a social norm. And there was that kind of aha moment when I completely switched how I saw money in Earhart's work and work on intersex. And that led me into this extended period of time working on intersex to the, to the essays I wrote on the five sexes and the five sexes revisited. And then accumulating all of this data. So I started out saying, here is an, an example that is quite literal of the social construction of the body. But then I started accumulating these other examples, the examples of, of the hormones and the history of hormones. And the more I dug into it, I began to see that there was, you know, a really big story to tell about how science and scientists through their daily work both construct bodies, but also how the science itself is constructed always in in a social framework. So the whole notion that scientific knowledge comes out of a particular social context and therefore has a particular shape began, began to grow with me. That's partly because after I wrote Myths of Gender, I began to feel like I needed some better theory about how science works, because feminist theory didn't really offer that. And so I began participating in this new field of science and technology studies and found I took a you know a 20 year detour into that field <laughs> uh, because it really grappled with the question of of how does science work um, the only other people doing that were the feminist philosophers of science who now we all I think call themselves feminist science studies people but which is a and now it's half a subset of feminist theory, but also half a subset of science studies. So I sort of worked in through that perspective. And out of that came Sexing the Body, which really was a, a kind of merging of feminist theory and a science studies theory with very concrete examples from the body to show what, when someone says, 
uses the word body and social construction or biology and social construction in the same breath to show what might be meant by that and to show obviously that it wasn't a silly claim, but rather a pretty complicated and interesting claim. Right. Do you think that feminists today uh, are still grappling with that, like are still kind of, you know, more focused on gender as this social construct, but not really talking about the body? I think that's changed. I think that there are a lot more feminists who talk about the body and who understand that the actual physical material body has to be part of the story and that the the use of social construction as a metaphor is more so for people who talk about gender in literature or that kind of thing, but that feminist theorists have moved a lot towards a kind of looking for a material basis to, to theories about the body, not just a metaphorical basis. Right. So you use the dynamic systems approach in understanding different bodies and how cultural difference becomes bodily difference. Can you tell me more about the dynamic systems approach? Yeah, I think the dynamic systems approach does a couple of things. First of all, it looks as everything about the body, how we feel, our identity, our sense of self, as not a fixed trait, but a process. Mm. And it's a process that can be very stable. So gender identity is very stable, or preference is very stable, but it's not necessarily fixed. So all of those things can and do change in particular individuals under certain circumstances. So the process is maintained or sustained by a series of underlying systems, some of which are physiological, some of which are cultural, and they all interact to form a, a process that work, that stays in a steady state most of the time. So this is called by um, one psychoanalyst who's written a really fascinating book called Gender as Soft Assembly. But my hero, Esther Thalen, who developed d- dynamic systems for approaches to psychology, also talks about soft assembly. So you see the body always as something that looks permanent and fixed. But it really is sustained always at multiple levels from the cultural down to the physiological uh, in a steady state, except when things wreck the steady state. It could be anything from an automobile accident to a psychological crisis to a death in the family to an illness, which is too strong an input for the steady state to stay steady. And then then that produces chaos and then a reorganization and a new steady state Mm. would look like the old one or maybe pretty different from the old one. So uh, in early development, in infant development, for example, uh, what you have is all sorts of input that's sensory and physiological, and it's actually literally shaping neural connections. So it's shaping the brain. It's shaping how the body works. And it's very often pretty gender specific. Um, So the research studies that I'm doing right now that I've done and I've been analyzing show that mothers handle their sons physically, handle their sons differently from their daughters. They speak to them differently. They speak more to their daughters under some circumstances, more to their sons under other circumstances. They touch them differently. They move them differently. They are actually giving sensory input based on their own gendered responses that is literally shaping the nervous system 
of the infant. And that becomes part of a, a pre-symbolic development of the nervous system, which then, as an infant develops language, becomes attached to cultural symbols of gender. So it becomes attached to the pink and the blue and the dresses and the Barbie dolls and the footballs. And that's all part of a process by which identity formation takes place. And as you know, usually that formation is uh, what is now called cis formation, that is genitals of the of the child and the and the brain desires of the child and the sensory input that went into the child are all all in agreement with one another, but in the case of transgender formation, they are in disagreement with one another. Mm. To, to some right. So it's like that cultural conditioning has real, you know, physiological effects. Exactly. And exactly. So when we're kind of undoing the the social conditioning that we've, you know, been taught, it's so much deeper than that, right? So how do we undo it on a physiological level? Or can uh, we? Well, uh, well, give me an example of what you're wanting to undo. Oh, I don't know. I mean, let's just say that, you know, like, if a boy is taught not to cry or express his emotions... I think like undoing that teaching would be kind of a deeper process than like going into the body. Yeah, so I think it is, it can be a, a deeper physiological process. Uh, I don't know specifically about crying, but yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, for example, therapists, I have a good friend who does a, who's a therapist who does a lot of work with gay men. And he tries to help them unlearn bad habits and learn different habits, learn how to express themselves, overcome, you know, notions of what they think masculine behavior ought to be. And one of the approaches he takes a lot is hypnosis because he's trying to get his clients, his patients into deeper into themselves so that they can overcome exactly that physiological habits sort of nervous system tracks that have been laid down that uh, one of the metaphors is sort of that you behaviors run in deeper or shallower tracks and the longer they run in a particular way the deeper the track is and that to get out of that track and over a hill and into the next track the next track maybe it when it's new is still pretty shallow so you need tricks that at least temporarily change your nervous system enough to move you into new places Right, exactly. Yeah, this is making me think of somatic therapy. You yeah. Yeah. So it's exactly. like, yeah, you're you're going deeper into the body to release these habits and emotions and things. And wow, I never really connected the kind of undoing gender conditioning to how like to the physiology and like going really deep into that. I mean, I've been a part of both worlds, but I kind of haven't connected it this deeply before. Yeah, and I think that's why gender conditioning after a point becomes so hard to undo and why and why people will declare, you know, very certainly that, you know, no matter how hard they try, they are always this or they are always that or they Right. Whatever aspect of it they're struggling against because it is deep and it and it's deep into the nervous system at some point and you don't just change it by changing your mind. Right, exactly. Yes. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at is that, you know, the kind of undoing the 
the gender conditioning is we kind of keep it into the mind, but it's much deeper than that into the rest of the body. Exactly. Do you want to learn how to integrate a feminist praxis into your work with your clients in your business with yourself in your everyday life? and be a part of an amazing community of like-minded feminists with social justice values that helps you grow your business with an inclusive feminist foundation, then you're going to want to join our interest list and be the first to know about when the enrollment for our next intake occurs. Go to FeministCoachAcademyCourses.com to hop on or click the link in our episode notes. Stay tuned because we will be connecting with you soon about our next enrollment. So I wanted to ask you, why don't we validate bodies that live outside the norm and that possess chromosomes and anatomy outside of the binary? That's a great question, and I wish I understood that better. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I can only, you know, suggest that, I mean, one idea which comes from, uh, do you know Lakoff and Johnson's work? They've written a number of books, but the one that comes to mind is Women, Fire, and Dangerous Things. They are a philosopher and a cognitive psychologist, and they write about how humans form categories. And they argue that the human, that there's something in our brain structure that likes dichotomous categories. Right. And, you know, I, I don't know if they're right or not, but this is at least one way to think about it. So one of the first, earliest categories that human babies make is are differentiating between males and females in their lives, adult males and females. So it's a very early category formation. Uh, in By six months, infants can tell male and female faces from one another. They can distinguish male and female voices, or at least upper register and deeper voices. They can learn to, by nine months, they can associate a deeper voice with a male, a picture of a male, a man. It's one of the first places, maybe the first thing that an infant does to cognitively structure its world. So it may be that it's so early and so deep and the sort of the basis by which then all other structures, categories in the world come into being for us psychologically, that to undo that is very frightening for a lot of people. It Maybe it makes a whole lot of other categories fall apart, too. I mean, I'm, I'm just shooting right. off here, but there's... This is the best I can guess. Yeah, um, that's true. Because if we start questioning this binary, then we'll start questioning other binaries. And that can kind of make our world fall apart as we know right. it. The other thing is that if you look at, I mean, the other thing that I've thought a lot about and not gotten very far in answers is why the response is so violent or can be so violent. Yes, yes. And from what I know of studies, and I'm not an expert in this area, the people who are most likely to be violent are young adolescents and young men in their 20s, 30s. So these are the ones who are most likely to have really violent responses to people who present non-binary in terms of gender. And it may be that this is a response to the fact that that their own identity formation moves very slowly. That is, Males develop more slowly psychologically than females do for whatever reasons. And it may be that 
the ones who respond violently are still have not solidified their own masculinity and their own sense of being a man in the world, and so are terribly threatened, threatened enough to really provoke violent, violent uh, behaviors. But it is not true that everyone in the world is violent towards the, towards the non-binary. And then, and then, of course, there are cultures that are more rigid with regard to gender and are, as a culture, have a more violent response. So there are these, these different layers of violent responses. But in our culture, it, it is, it's not restricted, but it's more common among males of a certain age group, which means yes. one, one wants to look developmentally at what's going on with, with young men in that age range. Yes, yes, exactly. I th- and I think there is something to your theory about like developing their identity later on and feeling threatened, you know, in the meantime. So you've talked about expanding sex gender categories, and you've used five as an example. Tell me more about this. Well, as you probably know, from both in Sex and the Body and in the Five Sexes Revisited, I need to make very clear that I was writing a tongue-in-cheek essay. I mean, it was a serious essay, but it was making fun of the medical categories that existed at the time to describe intersex individuals. Right. And so I made up names that were so silly that I thought everybody would realize I was joking. (laughs) Um, And it turns out a lot of people didn't realize that. And so wanted to, wanted and to this day want to hold me to the number five. And I, I actually don't think, I mean, even that doesn't work. I mean, no, because right. they, they aren't strict categories. Right. They are classifications used in the medical world. But so the five was chosen as a joke to describe the sort of five categories, the male developing, female developing, truly mixed gonads, and then XY people who develop as females and XX people who develop as males. And to just, because those were the groups that the medical world has. Uh, and I, I think now there's a much, even in medicine, that those older categories aren't used so much and that there's a broader sense, a sense that there are many, many kinds of intersex and that each one has a different cause or origin and it's much more focused within medicine on trying to understand causes and origins. Right. So that leads me to kind of connecting it back to sports. And because this is, you know, this is keeps coming up because of the Olympics and everything. What would you like to see in the future of sports be in terms of gender categories? Would you like to see gender categories fall away altogether, like some sports are doing, certain ones? Because there's this big, you know, there's a lot of fear there and there's a lot of history there, you know, around those that don't fit the binary in sports being discriminated yeah. against and all this right. and that. I mean, the, the poor International Olympics Committee, it ke- keeps looking for the solution when there is no solution. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, there, is, there, isn't, there isn't a correct answer. Okay. So, yes. I mean, that, I think that's the bottom line because yes. our bodies, collectively speaking, are too unruly. Yes. And so you have in the current, the just past Olympics, you have the two cases of uh, Chandra Dutti and uh, Castor Semenya. Right. As far as I know, are pretty 
clearly female in all regards, except they have exceedingly high testosterone levels in their body. So does that disqualify them? Only if we socially construct our notion of female as a someone who has testosterone below a certain level. And here again, we're talking a constructed category. Right. Uh, so I think that I don't know if there's a better way to do it. I think one thing is that it's probably worth doing one sport by sport because the things that give advantage differ in different sports. So, for example, weightlifting is going to be different than running because one depends on upper body strength and the other depends on, on leg strength. And those, those develop very differently in, in cis women or in women who have the more common range of testosterone. So maybe there's a way of developing body categories or developmental categories or, you know, the, in other words, height and weight as one body category right, rather than, right. strictly speaking, gender. I don't know if that can pan out or not work. I mean, I, there are people who are really expert in each of these sports who, who would have a much better idea of what works and what doesn't, what could work and what couldn't work. But I think a lot of time could be spent on it and still no clear answer given. I think it's especially ironic that, that there are trans women now competing as women based because they have now have lowered their testosterone levels, but they develop as males. So they have a certain kind of muscle development that happened during the whole time they were exposed to testosterone. I mean, I'm not saying they shouldn't be allowed to compete. I just think there's a whole lot of categories here and there's no good way to, to fix it. So I don't know if there's some just basic bottom line, you know, for men and women. And then you, you just have to stop worrying about the biological variation. I don't know. It's not an easy topic and it's not easy because there is no obvious answer. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. There is no easy answer. But I, yeah, I wanted to ask you about it. I think it's, even though there is no easy answer, I think it's really important that we talk about it and ask these questions. Oh, absolutely. And I'm, you know, I, I'm totally in favor of the, you know, having Caster and Duthi Chandra compete. Yes, I, I don't think that, I mean, I can't understand why their advantage is any more unfair than the advantage of someone who happens to have exceedingly high hemoglobin for genetic reasons uh, uh, yes. of which there are people who compete and win because of that they are that kind of human variant right so i mean a couple sports come to mind so in ultra marathon running i used to be a marathon runner and in ultra marathon running that's where kind of the gender gap is narrowing a lot and because women have really great endurance, right? Same for uh, long-distance swimming. Right. Women records, you know, channel swimming and that kind of thing. Right. Because they have more body fat, fat and endurance. Yes. And so in a lot of ultramarathon competitions, races, they don't have the separate female, male categories. It just they have one overall winner, no matter what gender you are. And, you know, several times a woman has won it, you know, that happened in, you know, early 2000s. That also happened in the 80s. So it's not like it's new. But, you know, I think that's becoming more and more. And um, we're seeing that these differences that we thought were differences are maybe not 
you know. So I don't know what would happen, for example, if you took boxing and did it right, right now. What would happen if you combined featherweights? Are featherweight women and featherweight men currently the same weight categories? I don't know. But suppose featherweight was defined in such a way that included equal numbers of men and women. I mean, would would women still get knocked out all the time? I, you know, I just, I don't know the answer to that. Right. Yeah, I don't either. Um, it, it definitely, it seems like in some sports, it seems easier to kind of do away with those gender categories. And then right, other, use other categories instead. Yeah. Yeah. And then in other sports, it's like, oh, right. Hmm. What do we do with that? I don't know. Um, so that's why I think for one thing, the, for now, the solution probably needs to be on a sport-by-sport sport basis. Ah, yes. That's a good idea. So how important is it to change the language we use around bodies, gender, and sex in order to not perpetuate the binary and oppression? Which language do you, are you thinking about now? Language that's inclusive or that's not exclusive. Well, I think, I think the thing with language is you, from my point of view, you always want it to be as inclusive as possible. And you're young enough, you probably don't know how much feminists change the language already in terms of male and female. So you don't say stewardess anymore, you say flight attendant. Right, right. You know, that kind of thing. That, and people made huge fun when feminists were demanding these kinds of things and, you know, everybody was, you know, like laugh out loud, how these silly, stupid feminists, but there's been a huge change in language around job categories and other kinds of things to make it gender neutral. So I don't see any reason why we shouldn't try to make other aspects of our language more inclusive. The only reason that, you know, there might be specific times when you want to get very specific about a particular individual or, you know, but on the whole, I, I can't see what you lose by making that effort. Right. Yes, I totally agree. So is there anything else that you want to share that you want to make clear or share before? No, I think for me, the important thing is for people not to get trapped in binary thinking about the body, and I'm, and here I'm thinking about the binary of nature-nurture. Yes. But instead, yes. for me, we can't figure out anything about why people are the way they are if we try to think of them as, you know, half nature, half nurture. We have to think of them as 100% natural and 100% cultural ah. at the same time. Yes. It's those And the, those things can't be teased apart. And that's part of what dynamic a dynamic approach is, is that you're always looking at how they feed back on one another. Right. Oh, I love that. That complexity, right? It's so complex. Right. It's not this either or. Right. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. I'm just curious, have you been in conversation with Judith Butler? Sure. Because I was discovering her work around the same time I was discovering your work, even though I know your work came out before hers. But Well, some of it did and some of it didn't. Yes, I mean I think right. Gender Trouble must have first been published before after myths of gender, but before Sex in the Body, I think. Okay. Yeah. I think yes, I think it did. I think it did. Yeah, no, it just that 
both of you are so similar to me, you know, I, so I was just curious if you were, um, if you've been in conversation with her at all. I have been in conversation with her and she's obviously much more philosophical, philosophically oriented than I am, but I, I feel as if, but you know, we've been on panels together and we've spoken with one another on more than one occasion, both in person and otherwise. And, I feel as if her her work and mine are complementary in some way. They're not identical, but in a way, she sort of takes the the question up to the edge of biology, and then I take it from there and plunge into actual biology. Yes. That's, that's how I think about it. That's a great way of putting it, because yes, it's not the same. It's not identical, but it is very complementary. And, you know, I love that you are going in that you've gone into science um you know approaching all of this gender and sex stuff and it's so important obviously yes so i'm i just i wish i want more people to know about it oh great yes so thank you so much for being here i could i I mean i could talk all day with you about this stuff but i will you're very welcome Thank you for listening. We appreciate you. And if you're interested in our certification training and getting certified in feminist coach theory and learning how to integrate an inclusive feminist awareness and analysis of practice into your work with your clients and your business, please go to feministcoachacademycourses.com to learn all about our certification training and to enroll now for our next intake. We are accepting enrollments for our next intake and we would love to have you join us. Also go to our website, feministcoachacademy.com to grab more of our free resources and to listen to other podcast episodes. Make sure you are subscribed to our podcast in iTunes or Spotify and that you're following us on social media at Feminist Coach Academy on Instagram and Facebook. And if you love our podcast, we would love it if you would rate and write us a review in iTunes. That would be amazing. Thank you so much. Have a joyful rest of your day.